Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the May-June 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. And remember, you can also earn CME credit by listing this podcast and answering the questions to get CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to our website at college.acaa.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And we also have an ongoing discussion on the ACAAI community on Doc Matter. So please open up that app and continue the conversation of the topics we present today. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor of allergy immunology at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. And I'm joined again with my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm Stan Feynman. I'm an allergist with Atlanta Allergy and Asthma and uh, past president of the college and uh, current editor-in-chief for Allergy Watch. And the third chair is Dr. Marin Caravilla. Hello, this is uh, Marin Caravilla, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you for having me. And so we have another great interesting group of articles here. I'm greatly looking forward to the discussion. And I think Stan is going to kick us off by talking about something we should always think about, which is telling our patients to stay active and give exercise. But now we have data behind it. You're right. And and we do try to tell them that. And then then there's a challenge. And that's what these authors were addressing. So this is a study that was published in the, the journal Chest. It was entitled A Behavior Change Intervention Aimed at Increasing Physical Activity Improves Clinical Control in Adults with Asthma. And it was a randomized controlled trial published in Chest in January of this year. And it was reviewed in Allergy Watch by Dr. Josie. So as we know, there have been other studies that have looked at exercise training and how it improves chronic disease and especially asthma. And there have been a number of studies that have shown that with a rigorous exercise program, the asthma quality scores improve, your lung, your lung function can improve, and you can reduce the amount of medications you take. And anyway, it's, it's all good. So these authors were doing something a little bit different. Okay. So what they did that was different was that they looked at a behavior change intervention. So the behavior change intervention was really very unique. And what it was, it was a once a week program for eight weeks. It was a 40-minute face-to-face counseling session. And they looked at and addressed the participants' willingness to change uh, their behavior. And they looked at a variety of goals. They, they set goals. They did problem solving. They did action planning. They uh, talked about monitoring, self-monitoring, and also monitoring by the investigator. They looked at information, generally information about health consequences. They looked at various prompts that people can uh, think about, you know, you know, may remind them to do their exercise, behavior substitution, habit formation reversal, also some verbal persuasion uh, techniques, and they had a workbook. And the other thing they did is they gave them a Fitbit. Fitbit, you probably, many of you probably even have them. They're uh, little uh, devices you wear on your wrist, and it can monitor your your physical activity, uh, sometimes heart rate, certainly steps, and, and things like that. So they had a group of patients that were really pretty homogeneous, and they had a 20 of uh, 25 in the intervention group and 23 in the 
you know, in the uh, control group. The control group obviously didn't have the intervention. And interestingly, that most of the patients were were female and most of them were overweight. The uh, average BMI was 31, which is, you know, obviously that's, that's high. And they also were mostly type 2 asthma. They 80% of them had eosinophils that were greater than 150. So, so that's the group that they had. Now, what happened was after this intervention, they realized that the patients assigned to this behavior change intervention had a significant improvement in their physical activity. There was a about 3,600 steps per day improvement from their baseline. It was also associated with it a significant improvement in the asthma quality score, the uh, ACQ, with about with a 0.8% reduction. There was also a greater than one hour reduction in sedentary time. So they looked at sedentary time. So the patients were more active for, by about an hour. And there was also a 9.2% improvement in sleep efficiency, even though there may not have been a significant improvement in the some of the other health-related quality of life, like when you, you know, ask them to do their own rating of their quality of life. So, so those were the behavior interventions results. But interestingly, during the intervention period, the asthma exacerbations occurred. There were 27% in the patients who had this intervention, 60% in the controls. Then there was a marked reduction, about 50% reduction in asthma exacerbation rates in the group that had this intervention, behavior intervention. Many of the patients in the intervention group also had reduced anxiety symptoms. I did mention the improvement in the ACQ score, and there was an increased moderate intensity physical activity. So when you looked at their moderate intensity physical physical activity was also significantly elevated, improved in the group that had the intervention. So they're much more active. So, you know, the bottom line is that the researchers concluded that this comprehensive approach to behavior change can potentially be complementary or an alternative strategy for a supervised exercise training to improve clinical control of asthma in adults with moderate to severe asthma. So, you know, by changing behavior, we don't have to have them with the trainer, you know, at, at, you know, all the time. And so this was the, the difference in this study. And Dr. Josie mentioned in his little note was that he, he said that it does show that behavior changes are often necessary to achieve the desired results in terms of control of asthma. But he also mentioned the major unanswered question is how to implement such programs in a healthcare system that does not prioritize funding for behavioral intervention changes for medical conditions. And that's a practical problem. So I thought it was an interesting uh, article. And we'll see what you guys think. Well, I, I like that comment by Dr. Joshi. But, you know, let's take a step back and think about cost and healthcare. You know, you mentioned, you know, 60% of the controls had an exacerbation that dropped to 27% in intervention group. That's like, what, a 50% reduction in exacerbations? Isn't that essentially what biologics do? A 50% reduction in exacerbations? How much are biologics? So, I mean, again, small eight-week time frame. We don't know the big picture. But if we're talking about cost, if we're talking about cost, would it be interesting if someone used the same amount of money that we spend on biologics on a behavioral change intervention? How much could you get for that? You'd probably get like some celebrity trainer for that. I don't know. I mean, certainly you would pay for someone's salary, I think. Yeah. How many how many Fitbits could you buy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's so true. And it's also interesting how they also looked at 
the anxiety scores in the intervention group because I wonder how much of this benefit from exercise was just also an ancillary effect on mood and stress because we know, and I, at least I see it a lot in my asthma patients, that it, there is such a strong emotional and stress-related component. And I can totally see how exercise would benefit that component of asthma. Yeah. I mean, just getting them off the couch for a little over an hour was, you know, difference was 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 remarkable so and you said uh, this was just one time a week right uh, no the counseling session was one time a week but they were you know kept the monitor a log and they improved their activity on a, on a more regular more regular basis than that so that wasn't like a supervised exercise program I mean it was a supervised behavior change so their daily step count went up their daily their, their overall moderate and vigorous physical activity went up so all these other you know you know things that we were monitoring, improved and their daily step count in fact went up there was a there's a nice graph in the article that shows it really was a almost linear improvement week to week it went up every single week so they sort of reinforced themselves and you know I, I just think that it's interesting because they you know allowed the patient to sort of control it themselves even though they were encouraging it I think a lot of us just get disheartened about behavior change you know with obesity and exercise but you know despite that, sort of depression we would get over many people not following our recommendations. I think it should be at least mentioned, you know, we should be at least mentioned that this is standard to asthma care, that it actually improves outcomes, that it actually could reduce your medication use. I was also going to say that, that there is no need to restrict exercise because you have oh, asthma, absolutely. which is uh, what I feel like a lot of our asthmatics tend to do, you know, and... Uh, you know, we're trying as a goal of therapy to get them to be have zero limitations and, and, and to allow them to have exercise. We are we are we see the lack of the ability to do exercise as a problem of asthma management that we need to fix. So, you know, we're 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 going to try to have to set the same goals. And you know, in terms of how to implement this, obviously, we don't have you know, as Dr. Joshi mentioned, buckets of cash to you know hire therapists and that sort of thing. But you know, I was looking into this myself just to get tips. And I, I ran into the AAPs, the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast series. You know, So they have one called Conversations About Care, and they do have stuff on topics of nutrition or promoting physical activity. And you know, some of the recommendations are just common sense things like structured activity, you know, setting a dedicated sports program that you set them up for or scheduled exercise time. And then, of course, the big one is screen time. You know, we know screen time is going to encourage sedentary activity, you know, finding solutions to replace screen time with other activities, especially ones that are more active. You know, these are just small things that, you know, we're not going to change the world, but we know these are out of benefits and ultimately are not going to only help asthma, but other parts of a patient's health. You know, if everyone exercised and ate right, you know, most of the medical industry would go out of business, you know, probably diabetes and heart disease are probably driving the majority of healthcare utilization. So, you know, we all know these are common sense things. We just have to, I guess, stay on message and not give up on it. I guess we could go to the next article. I mean, so far we are learning a lot. And I think Marin has found an article trying to give us more insight on, on a very challenging group of patients, which are the chronic cough patients. Hi, Jerry. So I chose to present this paper that was published earlier this year in Jackie in Practice and reviewed by Dr. Oppenheimer for Allergy Watch. A single-site study that was published out of Guangzhou in China, looking at this particularly refractory patient population with chronic cough and specifically 
looking at whether there were any clinical features in their history ahead of workup and treatment that were predictive of underlying diagnosis. Specifically, they sought to analyze different characteristics of cough, symptoms associated with the cough, and medical history in diagnosing the etiology of chronic cough that importantly in this study was with a single underlying cause as opposed to chronic cough that was of a multifactorial etiology. Over a period of 12 years from 2006 to 2018, they recruited consecutive patients with chronic cough that were evaluated in their cough clinic. All the patients completed a questionnaire before diagnosis and treatment. And as I said previously, they excluded patients with a multifactorial chronic cough, and they really only just looked at patients with a single cause driving their symptoms. So all patients underwent standard diagnosis, including chest x-ray, spirometry, including bronchodilated reversibility. And they also had induced sputum to look for eosinophilia and selected patients if the above tests were negative, then underwent a 24-hour pH monitoring, bronchoscopy, as well as CAT scans of the chest and sinuses. They then determined the etiology of chronic cough based on treatment responsiveness. So for example, they diagnosed cough variant asthma based on bronchial hyperresponsiveness or bronchodilator reversibility, plus a positive response to inhaled steroid therapy. They also separated this diagnosis from a separate bucket of patients labeled as eosinophilic bronchitis, the difference being that patients with eosinophilic bronchitis, in addition to having sputum eosinophilia, demonstrated a lack of bronchodilator responsiveness. So it is certainly possible that some of these patients who are labeled as eosinophilic bronchitis also had cough variant asthma, since we have described in one of our previous podcasts how bronchodilator responsiveness is not, or reversibility is not necessarily exquisitely sensitive for the diagnosis of asthma. Patients with reflux were diagnosed based on 24-hour pH monitoring, as well as response to anti-reflux therapy. And finally, those with upper airway cough syndrome were diagnosed based on investigations supporting nasal and throat conditions. They didn't go into detail about what these were, but also specifically improvement after treatment directed at upper airway symptoms. They saw an impressive number of patients in this clinic during this time. A total of 1,560 patients were seen in the clinic and only 400 patients, or 25%, were excluded due to loss of follow-up or multifactorial cough. So they finally had a number of 1,160 patients with chronic cough driven by a single cause. Nearly half of them had underlying eosinophilic bronchitis or cough variant asthma, 12.5% with GERD, and about 7% with upper airway cough syndrome, and 13% with unexplained cough with almost a quarter of patients with other identified unique causes of chronic cough. When specifically analyzing the clinical features among the different causes of chronic cough, what they found is that nocturnal cough was sensitive for the diagnosis cough variant asthma and was seen in about 66% of these patients. When questioning specifically about triggers like dust and odors and cold air, etc., there did not seem to be a specific predilection for any one specific diagnosis. Post-nasal drip, interestingly, was seen more frequently in patients with upper airway cough syndrome in almost half of these patients, but in less than 20% of patients with underlying reflux or either gastroesophageal or laryngopharyngeal reflux. On the other hand, 
overt symptoms of reflux like heartburn, regurgitation, and belching were seen in, while they were seen in less than 40% of patients with reflux individually, they had an extremely high specificity as expected for reflux being the underlying diagnosis. And finally, a history of sinusitis was seen in a greater frequency that is about a third of patients with upper airway cough syndrome as their final diagnosis. These associations held true in both univariate as well as multiple logistic regression analyses of predictors of these individual diagnoses. And the author's big sort of take-home points was that nocturnal cough was had an incidence of 66% in cough variant asthma with extremely high diagnostic specificity of greater than 95%. While patients with reflux in this study had at least one reflux-related symptom in about half the population, what other studies have reported and what we have seen in our multidisciplinary virtual cough clinic that we conduct at Emory is that reflux symptoms are necessarily not as sensitive for an underlying gastroesophageal reflux disorder driving their cough. And finally, a history of sinusitis, while it has a lower sensitivity of about 35%, has an extremely high specificity of greater than 90% for the diagnosis of upper airway cough syndrome. The bottom line was that empiric management based on a clinical history and clinical features of chronic cough may be more targeted and may result in better outcomes. In my opinion, this study sort of reinforced what we would already do in clinical practice. Further, they only included patients, chronic cough and a single cause, and its application in patients with multifactorial causes may be limited. Although the study could still be applied to the general clinic population that are not necessarily patients with refractory chronic cough ongoing for several decades, which is the sort of population that we tend to see in our multidisciplinary cough clinic. And in our clinic, the primary diagnosis for chronic cough is actually cough hypersensitivity syndrome or neurogenic cough. And so these, a lot of these clinical features are not especially helpful at distinguishing these patients. You mentioned neurogenic cough being the most common underlying cause in your multidisciplinary, which is obviously, you know, after multiple things have been tried. Is there anything that points to neurogenic cough? Is that more common in a certain situation? Or do we just go to neurogenic cough when we've tried everything else? No, there are certain historical features that increase the likelihood of an underlying neurogenic cough. For instance, so in this population that was described in this study, they said that nocturnal cough points towards asthma. On the other hand, in patients with neurogenic cough, you hardly ever hear them describe nighttime awakenings due to cough. So there's there's lots of different clinical features that are elicited by our laryngologist and by our speech pathologist that are part of our clinic. And these patients are then selected for not just laryngoscopy, but potential treatment with neuromodulators, interventions such as Botox injections, steroid injections of their severe recurrent laryngeal nerves, as well as concomitant speech pathology management with targeted at behavioral cough suppression. Marin, I thought it was very interesting that the uh, heartburn that we always ask about has such a low sensitivity in, in terms of 
you know, being there for, for reflux, whereas the specificity was high. So if they have the, the heartburn, it, 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 it could be, but the sensitivity is very low for that. And, and, you know, we do, when we take our history, we try to pinpoint, is it upper airway? Is it reflux? But I think, I guess this shows that it's, it's difficult to, you know, base your diagnosis just on history alone. That's what they were trying to do. Right. And, and you're right in the sense that the absence of heartburn does, of course, it doesn't rule out reflux, but if the patient has a positive history of heartburn in our cough clinic, they are automatically directed towards a three-month empiric trial of a proton pump inhibitor. So in general, Marin, what's your opinion on empiric trials? You know, I think we always go to, well, let's try inhaled steroids. Let's try PPI. Let's try standard rhinitis therapy. You know, some patients could potentially fail the therapy or they don't get better because that's not what the cause was. So you know, do you get, do you think objective testing should just nail the diagnosis on everyone then? So that's a good question because, and it really depends, right? Because it's a lot of, we are at a place like Emory, we have the luxury of being able to order whatever diagnostic test we want. And I think the author's point in this paper is that in China, outside of super specialty clinics, they often do not have that luxury and they have to rely on history and examination alone a lot of the times, and that there are certain clinical features in the history that, even if they're not necessarily hugely sensitive, are highly specific for the underlying etiology. And so the presence of these clues obtained from history can be used to make decisions regarding empiric treatment. That's a really good point about resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not everyone has the benefit of having speech pathologists and ENTs and gastroenterologists all <laughs> coming together. I'd love to get coming that together, with exactly. all the patients I see. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thanks for presenting that article. I'm going to round it out for this podcast episode by discussing anaphylaxis in infants and toddlers. We are seeing a lot of parents who are asking about food allergy in their infants and toddlers. We're actively encouraging them to introduce food early. This is the big push now that we know that there's the prevention of food allergy. You can imagine that a certain percentage of these infants could be at high risk and develop allergic reactions. So it's good to get a baseline of what is the rate of anaphylaxis and hospitalizations in the bird disease in this population. So this was a study of claims data from the National Inpatient Sample, or NIS, from 2006-2015. The article was Trends in U.S. Hospitalizations for Anaphylaxis Amongst Infants and Toddlers. That was published by the group at Boston Children's and was reviewed by Vivian Hernandez-Trujillo for Allergy Watch. And this was published in the annuals. And essentially what they looked at is they looked at this NIS sample from the government that looks at all payers, it's an all payer inpatient healthcare database from again, 2006, 2015. This is 95% of the discharges in the United States, approximately 35 million a year. And they looked at two groups. They looked at toddlers, which they defined under three years of age, and then other age groups up to age 18. And they looked at the ICD-10 codes from those hospitalizations, looking at anaphylaxis, quote-unquote acute allergic reactions, food-induced acute allergic reactions, and food-induced 
anaphylaxis. And they are looking at the trends over time. It's just basically just looking at the codes. There's really not much other than the demographics from the patient and maybe some procedure codes, but mainly just based on diagnostic codes. We don't know what they ate, what they're allergic to, anything about them otherwise. Now, essentially, through this 2006 to 2015 year period, anaphylaxis was steady in the toddler populations, about approximately the estimated 10 per 100,000 hospitalizations. And what they noticed is, is that there were no change of intubations at that time, no increases over the time, but there were five deaths, which I thought was interesting. Now, we don't know much about that, but, you know, I don't, I don't typically think of fatal anaphylaxis in the toddler population, but we do know it is possible. Now, there is some disparities as well. We've talked about healthcare disparities and allergy knowledge in the past, and Black, Hispanic, having public insurance or having a lung disease, probably asthma, but they just said chronic respiratory disease, did seem to be more prevalent in the patients who were hospitalized for anaphylaxis. Now, as opposed to steady hospitalizations for infants and toddlers, they actually were increasing over this period in older children with with the three to six-year-old population having the highest absolute increase for anaphylaxis hospitalizations. And, you know, the other thing we have to keep in mind is, you know, the, the LEAP study recommendations came out around 2015. So essentially, this is our pre-LEAP implementation baseline of anaphylaxis and in this younger age group. And you can imagine, potentially, there could be an increase. Now, the reassuring part about this is what's been reported from early nuts. And we reported this in an earlier podcast. Early nuts in Australia was not a national measurement of all the hospitalizations in Australia, but did look at infants who were exposed to PINA and the rate of reaction in that population. And they did see that after the implementation of early introduction in the early nuts study, that there did not seem to be a significantly increased number of epinephrine events or hospitalizations. I mean, it did increase, but it wasn't a very large amount. So uh, again, that's one potential reassuring piece of evidence, but certainly I think we'll be very interested in how these statistics will change in the post-LEAP era. Very good. You know, it's interesting that the rate, I, I always thought the, mo- the most interesting thing to me was the fact that the rate was pretty constant in the in the toddlers, but in the older children, they did say that it, it rose during the study, you know, in, in the, at least in the Northeast area. I'm not sure, you know, they didn't really address it very much, I guess, in the study that I recall. And they didn't, they didn't really talk about the impact of change in practice patterns, such as uh, the leap influence and feeding changes in children either. But, you know, I think it's good to review this type of data. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, you presented it. Yeah, especially my impression was that anaphylaxis, even from based on other, based off of other reports, my impression was that the incidence of food-related anaphylaxis has been increasing even among infants and toddlers. But this would almost suggest being pre-leap era data that delayed introduction may be responsible for increasing hospitalizations in the older children. And, and potentially, this is the opportunity to introduce food in the low-risk time frame. You know, I, I mean, I, again, I don't want to overinterpret the data, but you, you might o- almost want to cite this when you're trying to counsel families that infant and toddler anaphylaxis is uncommon leading to hospitalization. And that, you know, re- I'm not saying reactions won't occur, but, you know, the, the severity of it. 
you know, I, I, I think we're just trying to do our best to get food into the kids and protect them now that we know that we have this this intervention that works so well. So, and, you know, I, I want to I just wanted to emphasize that, that you know, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, uh, when she made her comment on the article, she was really pointing out the fact that you mentioned the, the, the discrepancy in a healthcare results really because of, you know, the Hispanic and the black children, you know, those are in the lowest uh, income uh, quartile that they really, you know, had trouble with access to care and they had, you know, increasing trends in uh, hospitalizations. So, you know, when you look at that, that type of patient, that's, that's a big concern. It's just another example. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a very hot topic on how we can make sure that we close the disparity gap in all aspects of allergy and allergy care. So it's really great to have articles that highlight this to remind us to be very mindful of these disparities. So that rounds up the articles for this podcast. Thanks for listening. If you did enjoy what you listened to, please rate us on iTunes. And we are welcoming suggestions to make this podcast more useful to you any corrections that we might have made or any feedback, just email that to allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. And we will see you next episode. Enjoy the rest of your day, everyone.